This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Once upon a podcast dreary, while I researched weak and weary over many a medical theory, practiced once in days of yore, suddenly I heard a calling as of something fiercely crawling, crawling from beneath the floorboards that weren't there moments before. <laughs> okay. Welcome to Travel Medicine Podcast. I'm Dr. J, your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc. Uh, oh, God. Why, why up, do you have to... Go to 11, fine, Dr. Santosh here, scared, infectious disease doctor, hi. <laughs> Why? That's, what are you? I'm so, I'm so scared right now. <laughs> What's got your knickers in a twist? Wouldn't it, no, you can't be all creepy and then just be like, oh, I wasn't creepy just then. That was, Who's being that was... creepy? I do our standard intro. And you get upset, dude, Santosh. I know that you're not like a horror movie fan, but just because it's October doesn't mean you have to be jumping at shadows. Oh God. Anyway, home listeners, for those of you familiar with the show, 
We like to do little holiday theme events. <laughs> and uh, it's time for this year's annual spooky season episode. We're going to uh, peruse through a couple different medical conditions that deal with, I don't know, existential horror. Maybe just <laughs> some body horror, a creature feature. Let's see what we uh, pull out of the bag. Oh, God. <laughs> maybe we'll Frankens. Maybe we'll chop a few of these stories up and mash them all together and make a sort of Frankenstein's podcast. <laughs> Listeners, it's it's been close to a decade. We've been doing this, and I just every single time you have to get scarier and scarier and all i want to do at the end of these episodes is go hide under my blankets well uh you might want to do that now because by the end of this episode you may not be able to sleep so let's get into <laughs> this year's halloween episode a nightmare on elm street <laughs> oh. santosh have you ever been to the top of a tall building or oh, a cliff <laughs> and look down oh. and you know maybe you felt terrified but maybe you also felt something else a weird inexplicable draw to jump yeah yeah i i thought that was is that vertigo it's it's a creepy feeling it's or absolutely maybe. bad because it, it's it's something that absolutely should not be happening that feeling and it's it's happening or maybe you're just driving in traffic listening to our podcast as one yeah. does uh. and all of a sudden you feel an irresistible urge to jerk the wheel to the side oh god don't nobody do that don't <laughs> you're talking about like catastrophic thinking right like these weird impulses to do things that are completely the wrong thing yeah and that is it has a name in French, okay. l'appel du vide, which okay. is the call of the void. Whoa, French. Getting creepy. Right. The language of love and cosmic horror. <laughs> okay, the, the call of the void. Yeah, so it's basically a fancy name for the kind of intrusive thoughts that a lot of our mental health population deals with now this doesn't necessarily mean when you have these kinds of thoughts that you're suicidal or even necessarily depressed it is your brain trying to organize and make patterns and sometimes it just glitches and you know what we still don't have a real good reason for why this happens and i'm going <laughs> to leave that dangling there as we get into our actual horror why because i want you to sit there and feel uncomfortable with the knowledge that we offer not just answers, but sometimes mysteries. Why yeah. does this happen? The world <laughs> may never know. <laughs> I think it is fair to say, uh, you know, about just exactly what you said. You know, sometimes it glitches. That is absolutely true. It's a little creepy to think about, even in a different existential way, Josh. but. Our organic computer, our brains, are not perfect as they're firing, and you can have misfires or sometimes some things which are like it would make perfect sense if we didn't live in our current technological age and all this kind of a thing with skyscrapers and, you know, super fast cars and stuff. But, 
you know, it, it just it's kind of maladaptive to what we have evolved to have in between our ears. And yeah, it, it can get it, it's scary to think that we're we have fallible, possibly glitchy software, but we totally do. And sometimes you need somebody to come along to study it. Someone who's a little unorthodox, maybe okay. a little crazy, perhaps uh, even a bit mad. Oh, God. Are we doing Frankenstein? We're going to do Frankenstein. Well, we're going to talk about some mad scientists, or at least some irritated ones. Oh, okay. <laughs> sure, some upset scientists. Okay. And let's open up with something that is, I think, on a lot of horror menus, which is, of course, electroconvulsive therapy, a.k.a. electroshock therapy. Yeah, and uh, I hope we get to talk a little bit during this episode about the good parts of electroshock, because, you know, it, it's much maligned, but in fact, it is one of the most effective treatments for medication and therapy-resistant depression. Now, its distant history actually inspired Mary Shelley, as we've known that electricity can sort of galvanize even apparently dead cells, uh, muscles, and nerves to act. Um, sure. This was a science known as galvanism, and it is where Mary Shelley got the idea for lightning to animate Frankenstein. But Ooh. jumping forward a little bit ahead, ECT is often used in modern times as an intervention for major depressive disorder that is resistant to other treatments mm -hmm. or mania or catatonia. Usually it involves multiple administrations, typically given two to three times per week until the patient no longer has symptoms. Now, this is not like the electric chair. You don't just sit there and suffer until we shock the illness out of you. It's administered under anesthesia with a muscle relaxant. And there's three different ways that you can kind of change how it's applied. And that is where the electrodes are placed, the frequency of the treatment, and the electrical waveform of the stimulus. A little bit of a crank this puppy all the way up to 11. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, 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 Josh, no. it's the opposite. You, you don't want to crank it to 11. So these treatment parameters can pose significant differences in both the side effects as well as symptoms going into remission in the treated patient. So that's just kind of a very short intro about how electroshock is used today. But I want to give you a little bit of the history of it and maybe history that you might not be familiar with. Yeah, I, I know that, you know, it, it was thought of ever since we kind of harnessed electricity, neurologists uh, and, and other physicians actually were trying to figure out how it could apply to biology. And very early on, we understood that motor responses, so like our how our muscles work, are in fact electrochemical signals. So it made intuitive sense that you could likewise modulate neurology and, and your neurological impulses and, uh, you know, using outside electricity. Uh, but I believe, Josh, that, you know, ECT had been found as a, a very good treatment for extreme depression, you know, major depression. You tried medication, you tried therapy, nothing worked, and the person was, you know, very ill, and you'd use it. 
but I think it was much maligned, especially in popular well, culture, because it depression, was depression. See, you're still thinking far too modern. Depression oh, okay. came late to the game. Convulsive therapy was first introduced in 1934 by Hungarian neuropsychiatrist Ladislaw J. Meduna, who believed that schizophrenia and epilepsy were antagonistic disorders, meaning you couldn't have one because it would preclude the other. Oh, so that's an interesting thought. Okay. So he would treat schizophrenia by inducing seizures with camphor and then metrazole, two drugs I'm going to guess you haven't heard of because they're not really used at all anymore. <laughs> well, camphor is, right? Because camphor is one of the, I think, petroleum products, but it's used nowadays for the, the little lamps underneath your uh, heating pot. This uh, doctor would use camphor and then metrazole to induce seizures. And while even that story is a little bit creepy because metrazole, uh, also known as PTZ, was formerly used as a circulatory and respiratory stimulant. It was found to be very effective for depression, but the side effects were uncontrolled seizures. So this doc used the accidental side effect as an intended treatment. Now, let's jump ahead a couple years. In 1938, Ugo Serletti, who had been using electric shocks to produce seizures and animal experiments at Sapienza University, came up with the idea of using electricity as a substitute for this drug metrazole in convulsive therapy. And for the very first time in 1938, used this therapy on a person affected by delusions. Hallucinations and delusions, that kind of thing. Yeah, false beliefs and hallucinations. Right. Gotcha. It was believed early on that giving someone who had severe schizophrenia a convulsion would help because, as we said, they thought schizophrenia and epilepsy were antagonistic disorders. Later, it was found to be most useful with depression. Serletti noted a shock to the head produced seizures in dogs. The idea <laughs> to use electroshock on humans came to Serletti when he saw that pigs were given an electric shock before being butchered to put them into an anesthetized state. Knock them out, essentially. A positive side effect to the treatment they didn't know about till they did it on humans was retrograde amnesia. And it was because of this side effect that a lot of patients couldn't remember the treatments and therefore had no ill feelings toward it. You, you've got anterograde amnesia, which is, I, I can't make new memories, so I, I keep forgetting what I'm doing you know, in the present and, and the near future. Retrograde is the recent past. That's 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 the that's the standard, you know, Gilligan's Island, you know, the uh, coconut bonks you on the top of your head kind of a thing. And they they do it way exaggerated, right? Like you forget who you are and everything else like that. This is retrograde amnesia for, I think, just a few minutes to maybe maximum one hour. Right, Josh? Yeah. Oh, wait, you were going to shock me. You already did. Oh, <laughs> yeah. did I pay you? I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. no nobody's going to do that. So the interesting thing here that you're bringing up, Josh, is that, and this is really important for everybody to understand, you are not using 
the electricity to shock the person and just to quote unquote fry areas. You're actually creating controlled seizures. And this is actually what causes the amnesia as well as completes the therapy in uh, you know in, in a person who's depressed and you know it, it works beautifully well but tell me Josh so so what happened you know he, he saw the amnesia where where was the next steps that they took about you know using it for psychiatric disorders so in the years 1947 to 57 following a turbulent retirement <laughs> okay <laughs> A turbulent retirement. He was forced out, I'm guessing. Is that the thing? We'll just let you look that up. Okay. Um, <laughs> Sir Letty invested his energies in a new project conceived as an extension of his original electroshock therapy research. And this is where we get into the mad scientist portion. Forced to leave the direction of the Sapienza University Clinic, He got funds from the National Research Council of Italy and founded a center for the study of the physiopathology of electroshock in Rome, which was aimed at studying liquid substances extracted from electroshocked animals' brains that he named acroagonine and injected into human patients. So he thought you can induce a seizure in an animal, collect It's cerebral spinal fluid because it would produce some electroshock special post experienced liquid and then inject that into people without having to shock them. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. So he thought that the the chemical products of a seizure would be found in the cerebrospinal fluid. And so he was almost treating the seizure as if it was infectious. Like if it was transmitted to another individual, then likewise that other individual, because of the toxic byproducts in the CSF, they would seize. That's a little scary, though, because there's no way to get those out then if that's how it actually works, which thank God it doesn't. (laughs) Didn't stop him. Okay. And he was inspired by similar literature at the time that believed the reason electroshock worked is that rather than inducing a seizure, it stimulated some kind of homeostatic process in the brain uh, involving neuroendocrine response in the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, which is kind of where all our hormones come from. Yeah. Hypothalamus is kind of the, the big boss. Our pituitary is the master gland, which uh, secretes hormones that help control a lot of our other endocrine organs. And then, of course, our adrenals, where the vast majority of our sympathetic responses come from, right? Adrenaline or epinephrine. Now, this hypothesis proved ineffective. And then he began to further experiment, uh, thinking that neuroendocrine effects of ECT would eventually lead to the development of the field of psychopharmacology. So changing the way your brain works with drugs for medicinal purposes. Um, So not bad for a mad scientist who tried to bottle up the lightning or at least the after effects of it. (laughs) But that being said, I, I see how this mad slash disgruntled scientist kind of pushed forward our understanding of treatment of psychiatric disease. Uh, It should be said, 
you know, it's an old therapy, but ECT now, especially that we can anesthetize people and Josh, actually we give them a a paralytic as well. So they don't shake and bite and that kind of a thing. Um, In fact, if you don't know, you know, what you're looking at when you, when you go in as an observer, it looks like absolutely nothing. It looks like the patient's just staying still, but it is, the efficacy is so, so wonderful for people with major depressive disorder, especially with psychotic features. Um, One of my favorite comedians, Josh, Gary Gullman has talked about it in some of his specials. Uh, People should definitely go and watch that, but yes, do not look at one flew over the cuckoo's nest. That is not a proper uh, characterization of this treatment. Now, one of the things they'll do to make sure that the EE, to make sure that the seizure is working or traveling as intended, is they'll monitor with something called an electroencephalogram or a brainwave monitor or an EEG. Yeah. So if anybody's ever gotten an EKG where they've put the electrodes across your chest to measure the electrical activity in your heart, same exact principle, only the electrodes go over your scalp to measure the electrical activity going across your cerebral cortex. But the idea of somebody just lying on a bed, unable to move, uh, while to all outward appearances, they're calm, but there's a lot of turbulence going on inside, kind of reminded me of one of my all-time favorite horror movie series. Oh, God. Okay. And that is, of course, Nightmare on Elm Street with the serial killing, wisecracking, master of the macabre and puns, Freddy Krueger. Now, one of the (laughs) biggest things that anyone who's seen those movies know is the The central tenet of that horror series is if you die in dreams, you die in real life. Yeah, yeah. If if you haven't seen it before, you uh, you want to start out with the very first movie, Nightmare on Elm Street, and the protagonist slash antagonist, I guess (laughs) the the horror movie villain is a a gentleman, a gentleman named Freddy Krueger, who spoiler alert but this is a really old film chases you around and then actually appears in your nightmares and if you fall asleep and he shows up in your nightmare he kills you in your dreams and you die in real life creepy so while we can say with reasonable certainty that dying in a dream does not absolutely result in real death yeah yeah (laughs) the body does fling itself into fight or flight mode which gives you a flood of adrenaline so the heart beats faster blood flows rerouted to to major muscle groups uh and in those who are already predisposed that influx of adrenaline can cause a cardiac event which could lead to death which is a pretty ironic result from a process meant to keep us alive when sensing danger (laughs) yeah we are supposed to have in the deepest depths of dream state. So when we are, you know, when we're really in REM sleep and we're we're dreaming and, and stage four and all those, we're supposed to have a pretty good rush of dopamine, uh, which yes, it's the happy chemical we think of it. But in this particular case, it actually works with other electrochemical signals to stop us from 
acting out our dreams. And this actually, there's a disorder where you can lack this, but you do actually decouple the autonomic nervous system to some extent, but not completely, which is kind of scary, Josh. So if you're having that dream where you're falling off the cliff and that kind of a thing, and you wake up, you will know immediately your pulse is going at 120 and you're sweating and you're breathing. Like well, of course, you know, that's you know. assuming you do wake up because uh, <laughs> one of the things they didn't put, one yeah. of the things they neglected to mention in the credits for Nightmare on Elm Street is based on a true story. Oh, God. (laughs) I really wanted to sleep tonight. Wes Craven, creator of Freddy Krueger, said he was struck with inspiration for the dream killer when he read an article in the LA Times about a Cambodian family who came to America to escape mass genocide in the killing fields. Every, they made it to the U.S. Everything was fine until the youngest boy in the family was terrified to sleep because he felt if he slept, he would be killed by something chasing him. He forced himself to stay awake for days at a time and eventually died in the middle of a nightmare, which is a very rough outline of the film Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, but Craven told... Uh, interviewers that this wasn't the only article he saw there were about three or four other articles about unexplained deaths of those from southeast asia particularly laos and cambodia mm-hmm. and all of them were kind of eerily similar so i started looking into this and in 1981 the year of my birth reports <laughs> of sudden death during sleep began being reported if not in mass then certainly in way more than we would expect to the CDC. And the incidents seemed to be isolated to populations who had recently immigrated from Southeast Asia in otherwise healthy individuals between the ages of 25 to 44 years old and mostly men, all dying in their sleep. In total, 117 cases reported from 1981 to 1988. Oh, jeez. That's so scary. Oh wait, let's make it creepier. Well, well, well. Before you continue, when when you say sudden, unexplained death, so we're excluding those folks where it is clear after a medical exam and that kind of a thing, an autopsy, that you know this wasn't a case of sleep apnea where the person wasn't able to breathe or a heart attack or something like this, right? None of these individuals had any prior history of cardiac events. None of them had family history. It was predominantly in Southeast Asia. And this kind of death during sleep is known as SUNS or Sudden Unexpected Nocturnal Death Syndrome. Now, of course, (laughs) that's just what we call it here. It has different names around the world, such as Bangungut in Philippines, Lai Tai in Thailand, Pokery death syndrome in Japan, because it has to sound cute, and uh, <laughs> and sons in the United States and China. And despite these multiple different terms, which we'll get into, the common characteristics are the sudden death of young, healthy male individuals during nocturnal sleep with a post-mortem autopsy that cannot explain their deaths. Right. So we do have an analog, Josh, which is 
you know, it's not Freddy Krueger nightmare on Elm Street, but we do have a syndrome called sudden infant death. And a lot like sons in adults, this definition does change over time because we do every now and again make inroads into discovering why, you know, one child or another dies. We actually found that there were risk factors that we could modulate in SIDS, like smoking, for instance. Not not the kid, but the parent <laughs> smoking. Don't let your baby smoke. <laughs> and then, oddly enough, uh, when a child was put to sleep on their back, so actually, you know, put on their back or maybe slightly onto their side rather than sleeping on their tummy, they were much less likely to succumb to SIDS. So there was maybe some factor of, you know, actually smothering because the child, you know, couldn't roll out of the way. But not here. (laughs) (laughs) Just went to sleep, dropped dead. Uh, The mean age, 33 years old, and 75% were 25 to 44. Uh, Uh Gurgling, gasping, or labored respirations would appear in victims before death. None of them had a history of syncope, which is passing out, epilepsy, or allergies, and only one of 60 cases was confirmed to have a family history where it had happened to another member. Now, the very first time this is documented in the medical literature was 100 years ago, a little more now, in 1917 in the Philippines, and it was first described by Professor Maria Paz Mendoza Guazan, uh, using the Tagalog words bangungut, which is from bangun to rise and ungol to moan. Uh, and in the Philippines, they reported 96% of cases, males with an average age of 33 years, with a peak in December to January, and the mean time of death, I'm sorry, the mode time of death was okay. 3 a.m. Oh, wow. So just when you'd be at your very, very, like, outest kind of a thing. Or it uh, deep in REM sleep. Right, right. So, you know, when you're supposed to actually be, by and large, paralyzed, so to speak, and your mind should really just be going through the, the dream cycles, you know, shouldn't be doing anything else, really. Um, which by the way that's quite complex in and of itself but josh this was this was during dream time and stuff so god are you gonna tell me these folks i mean they can't like tell us that they saw a guy in a fedora hat and a red striped shirt before they you know we didn't see cases after 1988 and you know the 80s were kind of peak freddy time so (laughs) uh but the word so lai which is the name of it in Thailand and Laos. Uh, mm-hmm. Lai in Laotian means a loud groan occurring during sleep or a noise made while frightened. And Thai is a word meaning death. So you have groaning sleep death. Uh, the okay. mean age in Laos and Thailand was 38 years old. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? 
Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And the peak risk was about 45 to 49 years, so a little bit older. Most of the folks who suffered it were heavy laborers, like farmers or manual laborers, but earned low income. And there it occurred more in the hot season than any other. Uh, Now, interestingly, suns is way more frequent in refugees and immigrants compared when you look at this, compared to the same ethnicities in their local homes. And most of the deaths from it occurred within the first two years after their immigration to the U.S. and declined rapidly after those peak mortality rates. So these are all indications that maybe maladjustment to a new environment or separation from family, overwork, low income, and other stressors could be risk factors underlying it. Okay. But let's get into this. So, of course, the first thing most of our medically trained listeners are thinking is there's got to be some cardiac abnormality. So researchers collected 18 hearts from these confirmed cases of sons, and they were reevaluated by Kirshner et al. Okay. They did see that about 17 of them had cardiac conduction system anomalies, and 14 of the hearts had persistent fetal dispersion of the atrioventricular node, which is our pacemaker node. Um, Now, this could maybe explain some of the deaths, and cardiomegaly was also observed, meaning the heart was bigger than expected in a lot of these cases. Sure. They also, a different researching group, Nimanet et al., found that hypokalemic paralysis was prevalent in the same populations in geographical area, meaning low potassium and the inability to move muscles as a result, which most often tends to occur in the middle of the night or the early hours of the morning. Oh, so this could have been, again, an electrochemical abnormality. So, you know, generally speaking, and this is a big deal in in internal medicine, I know, Josh, in the hospital, that if a person has low potassium, try to leave it alone as much as possible because giving a person potassium, overshooting and getting high potassium is actually very dangerous. But yeah, low potassium, you'll cramp up on the extreme end of things, you'll actually, you know, you won't be able to move. So, you know, your diaphragm, which is a muscle and your intercostal muscles, which help you breathe, are, were these, were these getting kind of cramped up and then there were conduction abnormalities in the heart? Is that moaning or groaning that they're talking about actually like a, like a, a, a struggled breath because they couldn't actually breathe? Well, the considering the risk factors that we've already gone over, yeah. researchers were thinking that increased physical or mental stress along with late night meals 
uh, excessive carbohydrates could stimulate the shift of potassium into the cells at night, disturbing the homeostasis. Now, they also found a little bit of a conflation with night terrors, which is a sleep disorder that is characterized by, tell me if this sounds familiar, vocalizations and moans, clonic movements, meaning spastic movements, an unarousable state, and severe firing of the fight-or-flight neurons, which often were observed in son's cases before their deaths. Yeah, uh, so night terrors actually, they can happen as a normal part of aging. Um, And, you know, the most common ages are between about one years old and, and eight years old as brains are changing during that period of time. Parents who have seen this, it it scares the ever-living crap out of them if they're not prepared, because it can be completely normal for a child. They sit up straight, Josh, their eyes are wide open, and they will sometimes make intelligible, you know, uh, you know, speech and that kind of thing. But more often than not, it'll just be screaming, and they can't break the kid out of it. So there are times when, uh, you know, they'll come into the emergency room, uh, you know, the family, they'll say, oh, my kid just had a seizure. Oh my God. No, no, no. They, they had a night terror. And, no, he was just being tased by a demonic burned man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's slightly abnormal, but not enough to call it a disorder or anything like that in children. Um, but as the brains then mature past seven, eight, nine years of age, these almost always go away and they get better unless there is a neurological problem or a psychiatric trauma. Um, So the idea that these folks who are suffering this are under extreme stress um, from something like you're saying, like being supplanted from their homes and moving to a whole nother country, um, especially if they have a genetic predisposition for this kind of a thing, which it maybe sounds like with the problem with their potassium channels, then yeah, this could kill them. And as we enter the age of genetics, a couple different genes were found as they went back and looked at some of these patients again. Uh, A mutation called SCN5A Mm -hmm. was found to be very similar, given, was found to be very similar with another syndrome of random cardiac arrhythmias known as Brugada syndrome. Yes. Now, Both of these diseases were similar, not exactly the same, and they shared essentially a predisposition to ventricular tachycardia, meaning the larger, lower chambers of the heart could start beating very fast in the absence of any structural abnormality. So the heart would look normal to a observer's eye when dead, but when pumping, it would go to town just racing, but only the bottom part, which means your heart was beating an irregular rhythm between its top and lower halves, which meant that not enough blood or oxygenated blood was getting in or out to supply the body. That could absolutely cause sudden cardiac death and leave no trace behind. So 
EKGs of those who survived Sun's attacks was very similar to those who had had Brugada syndrome. And in a follow-up study on these Brugada families with genetics, a polymorphic ventricular tachycardia would occur or could be induced after large meals in foods rich in carbohydrates. Now, remember, what is a large part of the staple diet in Southeast Asia? Noodles or rice. Mm-hmm. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Finally, fever or a hot season can cause the appearance of the Brugada EKG pattern and trigger episodes of ventricular tachycardia. This is not in conflict with SUNS. So it appears to be phenotypically a similar disorder as Brugada's, and we move from a burned fedora wielding, a fedora wielding knife handed maniac to, uh, large meals and hot temperatures in stressed individuals leading to undetectable cardiac arrest. That's so scary. So it's actually very topical as well, Josh. Uh, I know it sounds creepy. We did talk uh, last football season, actually about commotio cordis and sudden death in athletes. Well, we're now at a turning point where these rare events sudden cardiac death, whether during a wakefulness or sleepiness, is now becoming a part of regular screening um, in our pediatric and and, uh, some of our adult population as well, especially athletes. And checking, you know, just a simple EKG can sometimes catch these patterns of arrhythmias. And taking a family history as well can sometimes find some of these Unfortunately, some of these diseases, Josh, just like you said, the mutations happen spontaneously and you don't have any family history per se, the way that you'd expect to with a, with a lot of genetic diseases. But this is creepy as all get out. <laughs> so, you know, no way to know if you have it until you die. Until uh, you, oh, no, no, no. We're screening for it. <laughs> <laughs> we're screening for it. But yeah, let's, yeah, say, yeah. let's say that you are a dream warrior. And mm-hmm. preparing to go do battle against Freddy, and it's yeah. not Sons. Well, let's talk about some of the treatments for these Night Terrors or Freddy style nightmares. Just in oh, okay. brief, sure, there sure. are things like image rehearsal therapy, where you prepare for the nightmare, you talk yourself through these recurring nightmares, you kind of work out what's going to happen and how you want to handle it, and you do it over and over again. So when it does happen, you're on autopilot. So this is kind of a cognitive behavioral therapy along with lucid dreaming, which is a variant of image rehearsal therapy where it tries to teach you to alter the nightmare storyline by realizing one is dreaming or being lucid during the nightmare. That, of course, was the plot of Nightmare on Elm Street 3, The Dream Warriors. <laughs> oh, and they, they they decided to fight back by like taking taking uh, charge of their dreams, that kind of yeah, thing? Yeah, they became lucid dreamers and had superpowers in their dreams that they used to fight off Freddy. And two randomized oh. trials and okay. one case series showed yeah. the efficacy, efficacy of lucid dreaming in the <laughs> treatment of nightmare disorders. Oh, God. <laughs> I thought you were going to tell us that randomized control trials showed the efficacy of lucid dreaming in fighting off Freddy. So there was there was a randomized. <laughs> I was like, all right, 
<laughs> What's the placebo, Josh? <laughs> so there was oh, a God. randomized trial that would evaluate lucid dreaming on nightmare frequency over 12 weeks in 23 people recruited from the general population who had nightmare disorders using DSM-4 criteria. Okay. And after they were trained in lucid dreaming, the frequency of their nightmares was significantly decreased in both individual and group therapy at 12-week follow-up. Now, one of the other things you see across a couple of Freddy movies is a drug meant to suppress sleep called hypnosil. Uh, now, oh, uh, is this a fictional drug in, in, this in the was, Freddy universe? This is a completely fictional drug made up in the Freddy universe, although they did mention it could induce seizures, which kind of brings us back to that uh, drug we talked about with Ugo Cerletti. Okay, um, gotcha. But a number of medications have been studied for use in treatment of patients with nightmares. Most of them have been studied to assess their efficacy in the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. Okay, and gotcha. The ones who have bad dreams that don't fulfill this criteria for nightmare disorders tend to be atypical antipsychotics like uh, Zyprexa, um, olanzapine, things like that. But interestingly, there's been a surprising amount of success in treating nightmare disorders with clonidine, which is a drug we use for resistant blood pressure, but it is a adrenergic receptor agonist that suppresses your sympathetic nervous system. So it suppresses your fight or flight response and has been shown to alter REM sleep in a dose dependent manner. So uh, clonidine is kind of the hypnosil of the real world. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So lowers your blood pressure, but helps you fight sleep then? Well, the blood pressure thing is what we use it for now, but in studies on PTSD, they said, oh, incidentally, it just stops you from uh, having, or it decreases the amount of time you spend in REM sleep. Unlike another drug we've talked about a lot, which is quinine used to treat malaria that has a side effect of inducing nightmares. Right. (laughs) So more, more than nightmares, people will say that it gives them extremely vivid, uh, you know, lifelike dreams that they can't separate from reality. A lot of the time that is quite anxiety inducing like it's 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 scary uh but weirdly enough josh some people have said they actually enjoy dreaming on quinine because as long as their dreams are pleasant it's a lot of fun because it's like stepping into like a a weird virtual reality world but i love that so you can try to use these therapies just like you talked to us before so sleep dynamic therapy lucid dreaming cognitive behavioral but if folks are unresponsive to this, then the other thing that you do is reduce the amount of, of REM time that they have of actual dreaming time. So that, that makes a lot of sense that it can be used that way. So did a dream demon really emigrate from Southeast Asia to the US during the 1980s, inspiring Wes Craven? Or, or are people just dropping dead for no reason from cardiac (laughs) things that can't be predicted, which is scarier? I don't know. Josh, my family immigrated here from Asia in the 70s. Did my mom and dad bring a demon? Oh, God. I'm so scared right now. 
Let's move on to something a bit cheerier. Yay! Voodoo. Oh, God, why? <laughs> Are you going to do zombies? Are you going to do, like, the the pain from sticking the needles into the and the creepy witch doctor who 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 I do didn't you know tell was you know I love one was, was in love with you do you know who the oldest practitioners of voodoo are uh, I, I I think I, I I hope I'm remembering this properly I believe that the practice comes from native peoples either of Africa and it they you know the practices were brought over during the slave trade or uh, you know, older world Haitians, one or the other, uh, na- native people who are in the Caribbean and in Hispaniola and Haiti. Well, you would be not entirely wrong, but perhaps I asked a misleading question because the answer is China. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> That's an interesting one. Now, it's uh, actually, I should, I should, uh, provide a little more context when when we're talking about voodoo traditionally you think of using a mannequin or a doll to induce an effect on a living person who is some distance away Uh, china actually practiced reverse voodoo and let's talk about this this is fascinating in chinese culture Modesty forbade a woman from undergoing a physical examination or even mentioning certain parts of her body to a male physician. Oh, that's sad. Okay. To circumvent this situation, during house calls, the doctor would bring along a diagnostic doll known as a mannequin or a doctor's lady. Uh, Okay. okay. I kind of see where this is going. Okay. He would hand the little doll through a curtain or a screen to the woman. She would Mm -hmm. then mark the section, giving her discomfort, and then hand it back to the doctor. So she would kind of practice reverse voodoo by taking her injuries, putting them onto the doll, and then giving them to which doctor? (laughs) Stop it. Uh, and this way the woman could communicate her problems to the physician now while both anatomical and diagnostic mannequins were similar in appearance the anatomical ones were fashioned with a lot more detail Uh, they could be produced in male and female pairs but usually you saw the female figure and almost always in an advanced state of pregnancy and that's really all we know about them because medical history, despite China's, you know, recorded history of record taking. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's so good. Yeah. Medical history contains very little to no information on the origin or intended use of the mannequins. Oh, okay. So this is all we know is that. You know, the doctors would carry these little dolls along and women would mark where they were injured. And we don't know what they did with that information beyond what we would do today. Um, Wow. Okay. So historians kind of surmise that the models provided a means during the 17th and 18th centuries to study anatomy with a three-dimensional object or teach pelvic anatomy to midwives. But 
other competing studies said this didn't provide accurate enough information, and they were probably just used to educate the public on the differences between the sexes and physiology of pregnancy, but it's all just theory. So <laughs> I'm going to okay. go with uh, Chinese voodoo. <laughs> You're saying this is what we're able to piece together from whatever records, and sometimes I'm guessing history that's passed down orally and this kind of a thing. So just like you said, Josh, the Chinese history is very, very well documented by people in China. Like throughout we have, it's one of the, you know, best written histories that we have in the world, but they, I guess they didn't really talk about these things, which seem to be quite prominent for you're talking about like 600 years. Yeah. We just Whoa. whole chunk of history where we're like, these things existed, <laughs> Josh, but why? Josh, I sorry, I I wanna. I know we're gonna probably put a link in this kind of a thing, but I saw the picture. <laughs> this like the the women are kind of positioned like laying down sideways in the like the Kate Winslet position in Titanic, like the draw me like one of your French ladies kind of a position, so that you know, I it would be a little bit tough for them to to even indicate but i guess it uh, they're in kind of a a, a a posture of modesty um it's this really interesting okay so there you go there's a happy voodoo <laughs> story and the last one santosh i saved especially for you to give you sweet dreams oh god okay and it's about worms oh dear <laughs> okay Let's go back to Italy. We opened I mean, with an Italian. We'll close with an Italian. <laughs> we'll close with it. I mean, I, as you know, my study is in parasitology. I, I study toxoplasma. And I, but, you know, by the same token, I really love, you know, anything and everything having to do with eukaryotic pathogens, including worms. So are, are we talking about these little, little worms inside of people or... Like bigger worms, like earthworm-sized worms. We're talking about corpse worms. Uh, Cor Giovan Giovanni <laughs> Battista Grassi, okay. one of the greatest anatomists and highly educated doctors of his time. Okay. Born in Italy in 1854. Sure. He was a pioneer in parasitology. Uh, he was the one who discovered the life cycle of the tapeworm. Oh, And okay, cool. the life cycle of the roundworm. Okay. He was also very involved in pest control for the viral parasite Phylloxera. Oh, now, okay. what you may not know is in order to understand and prove his theory about the roundworm Ascaris, okay. he ingested roundworm eggs that sure. he had collected <laughs> from a human corpse after performing an autopsy. Oh, <laughs> oh dear <laughs> that's that's a lot of trouble to go through he could have like probably purified them out of the soil in his garden nope he was just digging through he's like you know i have a theory about worms and he's sitting there doing his <laughs> autopsy and he becomes hungry he becomes hungry in anatomy lab as one does and he looks at he looks at these worms or at least these worm eggs and he goes you know i think those may have killed this guy yeah, And I know this because I'm doing an autopsy, but man, am I famished. And <laughs> next thing you know, whoop, swallowed him. 
Yeah. And so Ascaris lumbricoides is the one that we think about most of the time. And, you know, by and large, it, it looks like a little bit like a small pale earthworm. The, the adult one does. And the, the life cycle is a little bit complicated because in the external environment, it has to go through its egg and then hatch out. And then it has the, the egg has to be ingested, released into the bloodstream. It actually goes up into the lungs and you cough it up and you swallow it and then the the worms reproduce as you you know di- not digest them but as they go back through your digestive tract so i guess at some point he had to de- <laughs> he had to demonstrate this so i i'm thinking i'm guessing he found the larvae which you know migrate and then get up to your lungs i'm guessing he found those and then the, the eggs part in the in the intestines or something where the they worms usually crawl end in the worms out. crawl out the worms play <laughs> pinochle on your snout they eat your well, intestines they scramble your heart now you feel like you're all apart this <laughs> is how it is to die you end up looking like apple pie your brains come tumbling down your snout your eyes fall in and your teeth fall out <laughs> it's a little creepier even than that because Josh, in in your intestines, right? The adult worms, they so the larvae go to your lungs. You cough them up. They you swallow them. They get through your and then down in your intestines, the ascaris before they make the eggs, they gotta you know, they gotta you know, bow chicka wow wow right there in your lower intestinal tract before the female can lay the eggs. The worms <laughs> so. crawl in. The worms crawl out. The worms have sexy time in your bowels. <laughs> exactly yeah it's it's a little creepy so yeah this is so he was in the long and storied and honorable profession of self-experimentation huh honorable <laughs> after, after yes. the course of 22 days he found out that he was also infected by examining yeah. <laughs> by examining his stool and he's like hey fresh roundworm eggs just like i saw in that corpse you know something we haven't developed a treatment for yet i'm sure this will go well (laughs) well the truth of the matter is that uh, you know at some time in our lives if you if you look across all of humanities about a sixth of us um so you know there's about eight billion so like one point something billion of us have roundworms going around and by and large they uh they don't hurt you all that much and you so uh <laughs> look at look at your closest five friends and yeah. one of them is possessed <laughs> by worms <laughs> Not exactly like that, but yes, by and large, what they'll do, their their parasitic lifestyles, is they'll just kind of hang out. And over time, because your immune system does a good job, it actually wipes out the worm burden. So this is mainly a problem for people who are very malnourished, little children, and immunocompromised. So he wasn't hurting himself all that much, in fact, Josh. <laughs> But don't try it at home. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, don't try it so at home. So that's it for this year's Spooktober Why the episode. hell would he go into a corpse? He knew that you could find it in stool. You could just like, and it's zoonotic. It's everywhere in the soil. That's Santosh, so we've been over this. Anatomy lab makes you hungry. 
<laughs> so creepy. That's it oh. for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links for further reading. And trust got, me, you want to do further reading. I, mean, uh, I got hungry. I just I went out for pizza. Remember, like you and I were there together. We just went out for pizza. Yeah, after handling corpses for an hour. Well, yeah, but we didn't handle the corpses into our mouths. It was creepy. Well, we're men of a modern age. (laughs) So, Batista Grass. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Ledger. The show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santos and friends. If you'd like to find out more about our upcoming appearances or just get occasional love notes from Dr. Santos and I, (laughs) go ahead and sign up for our mailing list at travelmedicinepodcast.com. And there may even be a special spooky surprise in it for you that may or may not talk about worms, murder, sausages, who knows? I can feel them. Like, I can feel them on me. This is so... Oh, God. But you're not thinking about dying in your sleep anymore, are you? Oh, God! I wasn't! Oh, damn it. Oh, God. Sweetie, (laughs) sweetie, I'm going to be playing video games all night so I don't fall asleep with the Freddy Krueger kills me. And Oh, uh, God. Did you hear me? as, As always... Keep a song in your heart, soap on your hands, a shot in your arm, a spin on your globe, and hurry back. Hurry back. Don't fall asleep. Be sure to bring your death certificate. Oh, God. And whether it's to this world or the next, as always, until next time. Happy travels. <laughs> Bye. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.